tonight. Hey everybody, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, thank you to those of you who are watching us online. And if you're here in person, we need you to do one thing for us as we get started, and that is to check into today's service. So take out your phone, scan this QR code, and check in. It's just a name and an email address. It helps us stay inside the safety guidelines set for us by the city of Boston, which is very important, as you might imagine. So go ahead and check in now, and it's also gonna help you interact with the service, get the message notes or the lyrics or anything else you need, all the links you need for today's service. Hey, so today we're continuing our, seri our series on relationship status, and we're gonna be talking a little bit about marriage and how to have healthy marriages. And if you're single, we're gonna include you in that as well. So just wait and hold your, hold your horses. We'll get you there in just a second. But first we're gonna to sing together. So Josh, come on up and take it away. Morning everybody. Excited to see y'all out here today. Let's go ahead and get to some worship this morning.
not giving in.
God, we just want to come this morning and say thank you for giving us a place each week that we can come out and, and worship your name and, and glorify your name and everything that you do for us. We just want to ask that you uh, bless Pastor Jared's message as he gets ready to come up here and give us an awesome message about relationships and marriage. And just ask that you continue to bless the rest of our week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pass it to Heather now. Josh has got to get his coffee priorities first. Hey guys, thank you for joining us here today, men and women. My name is Jared Kirk. I'm the pastor of Renewal Church. So glad to have you. Thank you to those of, of you who are joining us online. And like we say, before you do anything else today, make sure you check into the service. It helps us stay within the safety guidelines set by the city of Boston, which is very important to us that we're doing everything we can to follow the guidelines set by the state. So make sure you check in. And today we are talking about Marriage. I got married when I was 22 years old, and my wife Heather, who just did the hosting segment there, she was 20 years old. And so we went straight into it. I've been married for about 15 years now. And marriage has some incredible, amazing things to it. There is a sense of companionship. You come home at the end of the day, and there's somebody who's there that you get to share your life with. There's a friend that's built into that. There's someone who can cheer you on. There's someone who can lift you up. There's someone who can walk with you through life. So marriage is great, it's incredible, and it's amazing. But I know this to be true, marriage is also very difficult. Now, if you're a single person who's here today, I wanna let you know that this message is for you, but I'm gonna let you know how in just a few minutes. So stick with me, okay, through this today. You know, the I said marriage is difficult. You've probably all heard the statistic before that about 50% of marriages end in divorce. And that's been true, it's been very consistent for decades now. In other words, when you get married, if all other things are equal, you got about a 50-50 shot that it's gonna work out. That's like a crapshoot. 
it means you're basically picking luck, right? Like, is this person gonna like, is this gonna work out or is this person gonna totally flake out on me or am I gonna totally flake out on them? Marriage is tough because one of the things about marriage is, is that it doesn't fix your problems. You know, I, I love it. I think, I, as I said, it's there's this great parts about it. There's love and companionship and friendship, but marriage doesn't fix your problems. You know, you can be married and still be very lonely. You, know, you can get married and still be uh, angry and bitter and resentful. You can get married and instead of fixing your problems, you end up fixating on another person with problems who now lives in your house with you. And so marriage is a very, very tough thing. And I think that's why it's so important to get God's perspective on marriage. Marriage was God's idea. Back in the Garden of Eden, there was Adam and Eve. And God said, it's not good for man to be alone. And every time a man has been left alone since then, we've said, it's not good, right? He needs someone in his life. And so God put them together in marriage. We need God's perspective on what makes marriages. Because I really believe this, that that 50% number doesn't have to characterize your life. But think about this for a second. If you think the same way that everyone in our culture and society thinks about marriage, if you view marriage the same way that everyone else in our society views marriage, if you approach marriage the same way that everyone else approaches marriage, then you are going to get the same results that everyone else in our culture and society gets when it comes to marriage. That's why God's perspective is so incredibly important. And let me ask you as we get started. Where did you get your ideas on marriage? Something we don't think about. You know, sometimes we have really strong views. We have strong opinions, right? It's, we're, it's almost election. Everybody has huge outsized opinions on everything. Where did you get it from, though? Where'd you get your, where did you get your ideas about marriage? Well, I'm guessing it, it, it came from your family of origin, didn't it? So a lot of it came from what you saw in the home growing up. And maybe it was a very positive example. Maybe it was a very, very negative example, or maybe it was like me, where it was kind of a mixed bag, and there were some ways in which parents loved each other really well, and then there were some ways in which, you know, they could have grown in loving each other, is maybe a nice way to say that. So family of origin shapes it. I bet it's the, the movies that we watch and the, the TV shows that we take in. Maybe your undergraduate sociology class had some things to say about marriage. Where did you get your ideas about marriage from? Because I want to share with you today God's perspective on marriage because I believe that it has, the it has the potential to change your marriage or your future marriage. So now let me talk to single people for a second. This is so incredibly important for you to catch a vision for what marriage can be. Because if you don't have God's perspective on it, you'll walk into your future marriage. Now, not every single person wants to be married. But, but our experience at Renewal has been that most people who are single at Renewal would like to be married someday. And so if you're going to walk into marriage, it's unbelievably important that you have God's view of it so that you can it can help you pick the right kind of person. I always uh, tell young men this. I say, okay, imagine you're about to walk through a door and you're going to have to play a sport on the other side of that door, but you don't know what sport you're going to play. And you get to pick who plays with you. And your three choices are Tiger Woods, Serena Williams, and Tom Brady. Who are you going to pick? And you would tell me, well, I don't know who to pick until I know what's coming through, what, what game I'm gonna play on the other side of the door. Marriage works the exact same way. When, if you know what you're stepping into, it helps you pick who's gonna be your lifelong teammate, your lifelong partner before you step into that. And so getting your perspective of marriage right will help you step into it well. 
And so we need God's perspective. Now, um, before we dig into the scripture today, I just want to encourage you with this thought. You know, what we're talking about today is important partially because no one ever thinks that they're going to get divorced. No one thinks, you know, my marriage is going to end in infidelity and disaster. Nobody ever thinks to themselves, you know what, we're going to love each other at the altar and we're going to be so happy, but in about three years, we're going to wish the other person, we're going to secretly wish the other person died in a car accident. <laughs> and yet this is what happens to people. God has something so much better for you when it comes to marriage than what the world's than what the world offers you. And if marriage is a part of your future, and maybe it is, maybe it's not, but if it is, then God desires for your marriage to be a place where you are fully known and fully loved. Where the other person knows everything there is to know about you and still loves you incredibly deeply and accepts you for who you are, even when they see your faults and flaws clearly. God's desire is that you would be in a relationship that is characterized by oneness, where two people become one in a mystical, spiritual, metaphysical sense. You're no longer one person, you're, two, you're no longer two people, you're one person. And that's life-changing when you experience that. So what we're going to do is we're going to look into God's Word today in Ephesians chapter 5. And this is a place, uh, this is the most uh, full treatment of marriage in the New, <laughs> in the New Testament. Uh, this is going to be a test of focus today for us today, but I believe we can do it. It's, this is the fullest treatment of um, marriage in the New Testament. But when we dig into it, it's going to be so hard for you to hear what it's really saying. And, and this is just from 15 years of experience pastoring. It's hard to hear what it says because what's the number one thing that stops you from hearing another person? It's when you're thinking about what you're going to say in return. It's when you're formulating arguments in your mind. And so this passage has some key words if you were in undergrad, you might call them triggers. <laughs> Some trigger words that are going to key things in your brain that's just going to make it so hard to hear what it's really talking about. So what I'm going to do today is very different than what I normally do. The context that this was written in was first century Greco-Roman world. And so I've pulled a passage from a Greek writer named Demosthenes who writes about marriage in the Greek context. And I'm going to give that to you first so that you can compare and contrast Greek wisdom on marriage with the biblical wisdom on marriage that was in the first century because they're very different ideas about what marriage should be. So first let me read to you Demosthenes and then we're going to dig into Ephesians 5. Okay, so this is Demosthenes, the Greco-Roman wisdom on marriage. He says this, For this is what living with a woman is what, as one's wife means, to have children by her and to introduce the sons to the members of the clan. So a wife is for producing heirs and to betroth the daughters to husbands as one's own. He continues, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. So there it is in a nutshell, Greek wisdom on marriage. Have wives to give you heirs. So a woman's value is in her ability to produce children for you. Have um, mistresses so that you can have sex and a lot of pleasure. And then have concubines, which were, were um, wives where their family wasn't wealthy enough to provide a dowry, to take care of the household and make sure that all of your needs are met. So the Greco-Roman view of marriage is one of complete double standards. It's promiscuity for men, it's chastity for women, and it's women exist to serve and meet the needs of men. That's the Greco-Roman view of marriage. It, it's completely lacking in this biblical idea of oneness. Now contrast that with what Paul says to the Ephesians who are living and coming out of this culture. Here's what he says, and it's a little bit of a longer passage, but I want you to hear the whole thing. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. 
It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, a couple of things I want to point out from this. The first thing is that the goal of marriage is oneness. So when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, he was writing to correct a misunderstanding about marriage, a cultural misunderstanding. In Roman society, like it was in most of the ancient world, like it still is actually in many places today, outside of Western society, marriage was primarily a social economic arrangement to bring families together. It was not based on love at all. It was based on um, economics and family, family relationships. And so therefore, it, it contained the ultimate double standard because love was no part of it at all. So men could be promiscuous and women were there to serve men. And so therefore, it was also, in the case of both the men and the women, based not on a mutual partnership, but on what you could get out of the other person so that you could be as happy as you possibly could. The husband of a Roman family was called the paterfamilias, and he was legally given absolute dominion over his family. His wife would be picked for him, and so Roman marriages lacked that key ingredient that made a marriage a marriage according to the Bible, which was oneness. And that, that idea of oneness went all the way back to Moses, and even back beyond it, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. They were both naked and felt no shame, which was the biblical picture of oneness. It's not about uh, the physical nudity, it's about you're completely exposed, you're vulnerable, and yet you're still completely loved. There's no shame. Total oneness. And it's no surprise that in Roman marriages they didn't experience this. I didn't pick this woman. She was picked for me. There's no love here. I'm trying to get as much happiness out of this arrangement as I can. But the biblical idea of oneness is that you would be fully known and fully loved. And this idea of oneness is everywhere in the text. And I want to point out to you that the, what this text is primarily about is not about gender roles. It actually contains some of that, but that's not the main point. The main point is about oneness. And we see it everywhere because it uses the language of the body. Now, I need everybody to look at me for a second. In the text, when it uses the language of head and body, it's talking about an integral connection. If something is a, if one part is a head and one part is a body, the whole point is you can't separate the two. If you separate the head from the body, you kill it. And the main idea of this text is that husbands and wives function the exact same way, that if you separate them, you kill the thing, right? You, if you separate husbands and wives and the way they treat each other, you kill them. They're so integrally connected that to love the one is to love your, to love the other person is to love yourself because you're one. Let me show you that this is literally everywhere in the text. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. And so you may hear that through the lens of your undergrad sociology class, but the main point of what he's saying is that they're connected. 
that there are husbands and wives and they are integrally connected as one. Here's another place. It says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. What's the point here? It's connection. That they are one and therefore when you love the other person, it's like loving yourself. He also says, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So just like a head and a body are one, so now we see that Jesus and his followers are one. And then the Apostle Paul quotes a Bible verse to make his point. But he doesn't quote a Bible verse about gender roles. There's some of those that are out there in the Old Testament, but he doesn't do that at all. Instead, he quotes a Bible verse about oneness. Listen to what he says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he picks the Bible verse most directly related to oneness. And then finally, he says, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And then, he, so he says, why do you have to love your wife be, as you love yourself? Because you're one. When you love her, you're, it's like you're loving yourself. So Paul is writing to the Corinthian church to correct marriages, where the goal was my personal happiness and getting as much out of this relationship as I possibly can, and encouraging them to pursue oneness, which is the biblical vision for marriage. Now, the second thing that I want to point out from this text is that the instructions that he gives here for married people, because he gives certain instructions to husbands and to wives, the instructions promote oneness. So if you don't see that the goal is oneness, then the instructions make no sense whatsoever. But in the context of the two becoming one, all of a sudden it starts to make sense. And so the Corinthian Christians, every single one of them had what you might refer to today as a traditional marriage. And tradition, you know, where the, the, the husband is the primary authority of the household and oftentimes the, the, the major breadwinner. And this existed throughout all of antiquity and, like I said, in much of the world today. And traditional marriages fail to attain oneness in very predictable ways. The husband who has all the authority uses it to take advantage of the double standard and to make himself comfortable. And so everyone else in the home is expected to serve him. And in this type of relationship, a wife who is not being honored or respected or cared for or loved figures to herself, you know, he puts himself first and he gets as much as he can. I'm going to do the same thing. And so I'm going to do what I want, irrespective of his wishes, and I'm certainly not going to respect him. And why should she? <laughs> he put, he's constantly trying to put himself first. She's doing the majority of the work. And that's how traditional marriages fail. So when Paul writes, he's, he's writing to correct this situation. And so here's how he corrects it. Now, first of all, not in this text, but in other places in the Bible, it is explicitly clear that Paul and Jesus both um, forbid men from having sexual relations with women outside of marriage. And you might think, well, obviously. But that wasn't a part of Greco-Roman either philosophy or ethics or religion. It was expected that you would have uh, mistresses and concubines and sleep with prostitutes, the double standard was literally enforced in the culture. But here in the New Testament writers, Paul, uh, he, he explicitly rejects the sexual part of the double standard and says there's supposed to be complete oneness. So there was that part of the double standard. But here's the other part of it. Here, he's writing about the not just the sexual part of it, but he's writing about the obligation that husbands have to love their wives sacrificially, to sacrifice for her the same way that Jesus did. You know, ev Jesus loved the church enough to die for her. He loved you enough to die for you. He also loved the church enough to live for her every day. And the question for husbands is, will you do the same? 
Will you love her the way that Jesus has loved you? Headship in the Bible, if you're looking for a short, a, a short phrase that helps you understand what headship is in the Bible, it means to take sacrificial responsibility for the well-being of another person, which is what Jesus did. To be willing to sacrifice and to take some responsibility to make sure that other people in your care thrive. So a husband's responsibility is to care for his wife, to provide for her, and to make it his ambition to see that she thrives, to pursue oneness with her, which her soul so desperately craves. And wives here are encouraged to submit to their husband's leadership. And you might think, well, why, why on earth is that? Well, because in a me-first marriage, oneness is impossible. But as a wife shows respect to her husband, by deferring to his leadership, he feels loved. Now listen, most husbands, now this is a generality, but most husbands don't need roses to feel loved. But if you want to communicate love to a husband, try saying this. I believe in you. I respect you, and I would follow you to hell and back. And if you say that to a husband, he will very likely feel deeply, deeply loved. That promotes oneness. And it forms a virtuous cycle in a relationship where a husband takes sacrificial responsibility for the well-being of his family, not for himself, but for everyone else, and a wife shows respect and appreciation for his competent leadership of the family. And in turn, that encourages the husband to do more, which makes it easier for the wife to follow his lead. So the instructions that Paul gives are intended to promote oneness in the relationship. And here's the third thing I want to point out from the text. The identity needed for marriage is oneness. The final thing that comes through the, in this text so strongly is the connection between marriage and Jesus. Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And you might think, why, why is he bringing up Jesus in marriage? Why not just give instructions? Hey, you better love each other. You got to respect each other, that sort of thing. And the reason that he brings up the connection between Jesus and the church is that Paul himself experienced that when you have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, it can radically transform your identity. Because with Paul, it transformed him from someone whose identity was found in his religious, his religious observance and performance and his intellectual abilities into someone whose identity had been shaped by God's forgiveness and grace to him. And it changed him. And so he applies this same logic to marriage. If your identity is found in having a great family, and so um, you want to have a great family, a great marriage, you want to have great children, then ultimately you try to control the people who are in your family. You'll try to control the people who are in your family so that you appear to have a good relationship. You will try to control your children so that they look like they're well behaved. You'll try to control your husband so that he be so that he looks well behaved. Or you'll try to control your wife to make sure that your home looks perfect or something like that. And your desire to have a perfect family will actually crush the family that you're hoping to have so much. The same thing happens when you overwork. If your identity comes from your job, which is actually more common in Boston than having your identity wrapped up in your family, and that feeling of success and achievement and accomplishment that you got from school, you're now getting it from your work, that can ruin your marriage as well. See, we all know, we, we all know that overworking can destroy a marriage, but a lot of times we don't know why we overwork. Well, oftentimes it's because we're good at it and we get a feeling of satisfaction, we get a feeling of acceptance, we get a feeling of achievement from it. Our self-worth is wrapped up in our job and therefore we invest too much in that, we have poor boundaries and it can destroy our marriages and our families. So therefore, now watch. 
That's why Paul says in this text, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's pointing out that the oneness of marriage is a picture of Jesus' oneness with you. So when your identity comes from the fact that you have been deeply loved, that you've been forgiven, that God's shown you mercy and grace, that it's not something you earned, but something that's been given to you and you are fully loved, you will be free to have a great marriage and a great family because you won't need to get your identity from your job anymore. You know, your job doesn't die for your sins, but Jesus did. And your identity doesn't come from having the perfect family as if that could exist in the first place anyway. It comes from Jesus, and therefore you're free to love with abandon. When your identity comes from Jesus, it's stable and secure, and it frees you to love unconditionally. So the identity you need to succeed in marriage is oneness, but it's not oneness with the other person, it's oneness with Christ. Now, I'm going to make some attempt to make some application of this to your life, whether you're single or married in just a few minutes here. But before we do that, I want to talk to those of you who aren't sure that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because you may be hearing this today and thinking to yourself, you know, I don't know that I have the resources I need to be married well. Either because I'm in a marriage today and it's not going the way that I wanted it to, or I, I lived through a marriage or a lack of a marriage that was an absolute disaster in my family of origin, and I'm deathly afraid that if I step into the next one, I'm going to ruin it too. Because I run into people all the time who say, you know, they say my, my, my parents' marriage was horrible, but when I go into the next one, it's not going to be like that. And I appreciate the feeling, but one of the things I've always found to be true is that if you're just running away from something, you're going to run right back into it. And I don't know why that is with human beings, but it's true. Because running away from something is not a vision for your life. You need to be running towards something. And if you're running towards Christ, he will give you a vision for a better life and a better marriage. But that only happens when you have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. And if you don't have that in your life today, that's something you can start. Because God loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and then rise from the dead so that you could have freedom and hope. And you could turn from your selfish ways, your me-first ways, and live a God-first life and put God first and Jesus first in your life and live for him. And God would come into your life and completely redo your, not only your relationships, but your whole interior life as well. And so if you need that today, I'm going to pray at the end of the service, and you can start a relationship with God today. But for those of you who have that relationship in place in your life already, what do we do with this text? Well, a couple of things. I'm going to try to apply this to mar married people and singles in just a second. Okay? But as we think about this, we, we talked about how Paul wrote into a group of Christians where all, basically all of them were practicing what we would call traditional marriage. But we're here in Boston, and so basically everyone you know is practicing something that I would call egalitarian marriage. Almost everyone you know. Egalitarian marriages are marked by, um, let's see, traditional gender roles are largely abandoned. Both spouses work. Household duties are attempted to split evenly. That, you know, that's the basic thrust of egalitarian marriages. Egalitarian means equal. And if you're a part of egalitarian marriage or you, you have that vision for your marriage, it's very easy to judge traditional marriages either because you don't understand them or because you've seen them go so horribly wrong in the past and people have abused uh, have abused the, the marriage for their own gain. But if traditional marriages tend to fail as men abuse their role and women lose respect for their husband's leadership, egalitarian marriages tend to fail in predictable ways as well. 
Both spouses work and can tend to prioritize career over oneness. There may be serious conflicts over whose career should take precedence. The obsession with equality can be an obstacle to oneness, as both spouses feel that they do more than their fair more than their fair share, and they start to keep score. Love evaporates. It's really hard for love to flourish where scorekeeping is happening. Instead of men abusing their responsibility to lead and serve in egalitarian marriages, they often abdicate it completely, becoming full-grown teenagers. And in the great irony of egalitarian marriages, oftentimes, as men abdicate their leadership role, women feel like they must step into it and end up taking on more than their fair share of responsibilities, enabling a less than competent partner. And just like in unhealthy traditional marriages, women can end up resenting the fact that they do more work in the relationship than their partner. So, what's to be done? Well, if you're married, I want to encourage you to focus on your own stuff. <laughs> the Bible here gives specific instructions to husbands and wives. And if you're a husband, you need to focus on the instructions to husbands, not the instructions to wives. If you're a husband and you think to yourself, you know, my wife really needs to respect me more and she needs to, do, you've already lost. You will completely fail because the fastest way to ruin a relationship is to try to change the other person. These instructions were given so that you could focus on yourself. So if you're a husband in a relationship today, the question is, how could I take sacrificial responsibility for the well-being of my wife or of my family? And so how can I love her? How can I pray for her? How can I lift her up? Maybe it needs, means doing the dishes or giving her a night off so that she can go out. Maybe it means leading prayer in the evenings, which is something I know. It was awkward for me when I started it because I didn't grow up in a home where we ever prayed together. It felt so strange. But you know what? There's a part of being a leader in a home where you just say, okay, well, I'm going to man up and do it even though it feels awkward at first. And then after a little while, it won't feel awkward. It might mean leading devotions for your children. It, may, it means paying attention to your wife to make sure she is absolutely thriving in every way. If you're a wife, what would it look like to promote oneness in your relationship? By respecting your husband's competence and leadership where you can. And lifting him up and letting him know that you're proud of him when he takes sacrificial responsibility for the family. If you are not yet married, but would like to be, as so many people are, for you, I think this means practicing the kind of life that prepares you for marriage, which is to say living selflessly, putting others first. If you want to if you want great practice for building oneness in a marriage, one of the best ways to do that is to practice building unity in a local church. And so getting deeply involved in the lives of other people, living out a life of service, not only prepares you for marriage, but in case, God's, in case marriage isn't a part of God's good plan for your life, it also means that just practically today, you're living more and more like Jesus every single day. And so you need to find ways in your life where you are actively sacrificing and serving for other people. Now, for both married and single people, I think one of the best ways that you can grow in this is to join a group of people. We say all the time at Renewal Church, life is better connected and circles are better than rows. And so if you're married, you can get into a couples group. Next week, we'll be starting groups after the service. And you can get into a group with some other couples who are trying to walk forward in a godly way, have a marriage that's based on oneness. And we do sometimes we do marriages, marriage studies together. Sometimes we do Bible studies together, and it'll help you grow. And if you're single, it'll put you into a community of people 
a community of people that you can practice loving and serving and making your life not about yourself, but about helping other people grow and thrive. And it'll be great preparation if marriage is part of your future. And if it's not, you'll just be living like Christ today, which is the best reason I can possibly think of. You can join the groups link tomorrow, uh, next week after the service. You can just show up or you can text the word groups back after you check in and we'll send you some information on that. But listen, wherever you are, you know, I, you may be here today and you're married and you're going through a tough time. Well, Jesus has grace to get you through that. Or you might be here and you're single and you're not married yet. And thinking to yourself, you know, thank you for sharing about that, Pastor Joe. That's all well and good. But in my soul, it hurts when we talk about this because I wish that it was different. And let me just encourage you with this. If you are single today, God's good plan for your life doesn't start the day when you're married. God's good plan for your life is unfolding today. Today is the day of God's favor. And you may not have oneness with a spouse that you have as a deep desire of your heart, but you do have oneness with Christ. And he can fulfill your soul in a way that no marriage partner ever could. And so you have everything you need to live with joy. You have everything you need to live a, uh, a fulfilled life, to move out into this world in strength and to make a difference and serve in the name of Jesus. You have what you need when you have Jesus. All right, let's close in prayer. And I said that I was going to, if you could bow your head and close your eyes with me, I mentioned to those of you who want to start a relationship with God through his son Jesus, who feel like you don't have that in place, I'm going to pray a prayer now asking him to be your forgiver and leader, and maybe today is your day to make this prayer your own. Let's pray. Father, I, there, there can be a lot of hurt when we talk about marriage and relationships. Hurt as we think back about our parents' relationships, or hurt as we think about the desires of our heart today. I pray for those who are hurting. And for those who need you in their life, we pray this prayer. God, I know that I need you. I want to turn from my sin. I want to live for you. I don't want to live a selfish life. I want to live a God-first life. But I need your help. I need Jesus. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead so that I could have freedom and hope. God, would you come into my life? Forgive me and lead me for this day forward. I want to live for you, but I need your help. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that today, that is the life-changing decision. Not only does it change your marriages, it changes your eternity, and it changes your today. And the next step, according to the Bible, for those who put their trust in Jesus, is always to be baptized. It's to plunge your past. And we're going to be actually doing that this coming week. So if you're interested in that, you can text the word baptism back after you check in. We'll just get you the info that you need on that so that we could talk on the phone or email or something to get you prepared for that. But we'll be doing that this coming Saturday. If you'd like more info on that, let us know. All right, that's it for me. But now we're going to pass it back to Heather to end the service. We're going to give together now, and the fastest and easiest way to give is through our Boston Renewal Church app, and it's really easy to download and just set up giving through that. Um, we're also, you know, just want to remind you that next week will be our community, community groups connection event, and um, we would love for you to join us there, and um, you just need to show up 
and um, we're just so excited to have you. Also at the Orange Tent, we're gonna have our next step. So if you have any questions, you wanna get to know Renewal Church more, uh, we'll have a free gift for you and Nicole and Pastor Jared are gonna be there um, running that. So thank you so much. We hope to see you next week as we continue our relationship status series. Have a good Sunday.